be in reading Deuteronomy chapter 28 verses 1 to 19. Uh, we might start in prayer first. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words of life and truth. We thank you that you are completely trustworthy, that you never let us down. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your mercy and for your redeeming love through Jesus Christ. Help us today to hear your words, uh, convict us, change our lives, help us to wholeheartedly follow you in all that we do and say and how we live and how we love one another. Thank you, Lord God, for your incredible love. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 1 to 19. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on the earth. All these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. You will be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed and the crops of your land and the young of your livestock, the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks. Your basket and your kneading trough will be blessed. You'll be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. The Lord will grant that the enemies who rise up against you will be defeated before you. They will come at you from one direction but flee from you in seven. The Lord will send a blessing on your barns and on everything you put your hand to. The Lord your God will bless you in the land he is giving you. The Lord will establish you as his holy people, as he promised you on oath, if you keep the commands of the Lord your God and walk in obedience to him. Then all the peoples on the earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they will fear you. The Lord will grant you abundant prosperity in the fruit of your womb, the young of your livestock, and the crops of your ground, in the land he swore to your ancestors to give to you. The Lord will open the heavens, the storehouse of his bounty, to send rain on your land in season, and to bless all the work of your hands. You will lend to many nations, but will borrow from none. The Lord will make you the head, not the tail. If you pay attention to the commands of the Lord your God that I give you this day and carefully follow them, you will always be at the top, never at the bottom. Do not turn aside from any of the commands I give you today, to the right or to the left, following other gods and serving them. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I am giving you today, all these curses will come on you and overtake you. You will be cursed in the city and cursed in the country. Your basket and your kneading trough will be cursed. The fruit of your womb will be cursed and the crops of your land and the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks. You will be cursed when you come in and cursed when you go out. Luke chapter 4, starting at verse 14 
through to 21, and then going through to chapter 6, 20 to 26. Luke chapter 4, starting at verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue was fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Through to chapter 6, 20 to 26. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. Hear the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, in the process of uh, working my way through the Sermon of the Plain a few weeks ago, I found myself uh, at a set of traffic lights next to a luxury European SUV. Uh, and what caught my attention wasn't the car so much as the dramatic logo that was printed on its side. Now, to protect the identity of the innocent, I'm going to change the details a little. But on the side of the car was written, Good Fortune Church. And underneath was this church's motto helping you reach God's full blessing on your life. Now, my guess is that the guy behind the wheel of the car was the pastor of the church, and the point of his mobile message seemed to be pretty straightforward, doesn't it? Um, following Jesus ought to bring you into fullness of life, and that should include financial prosperity. So we might even dare to paraphrase his slogan like this, "'Come follow Jesus, and he will bless you with riches.'" Now, I'm, I'm picking on this pastor and I'm, I'm making a bit of a caricature out of him. And I do want to be very careful about criticising a brother in Christ. 
uh, because I do understand where he's coming from. Um, and I know why he might equate God's blessing with material affluence, because there is an important half-truth here. There is an important uh, biblical theme running in his thinking. But when we come to Jesus' first utterance in the Sermon on the Plain, he clearly says something that appears to contradict this, doesn't he? Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And three very similar statements follow. Uh, Blessed are you who hunger now. Blessed are you who weep now. Blessed are you when people hate you, exclude you, insult you. And these people that Jesus calls blessed are directly contrasted uh, with their opposite to whom Jesus offers a stern warning. Woe! Woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are well fed now. Woe to you who laugh now. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. Well, that's an entirely different view of the Christian life and calling than what we saw on the side of that SUV. So what's Jesus about here? How are we to capture his... What motto would we give to his teaching here? Um, Should we borrow his words from Luke 18, his words to the rich ruler? Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Is that what we're meant to do in response to this word? Well, when we began last week, I suggested to you that we risk seriously misunderstanding Jesus if we fail to hear his words in the context in which Luke presents them. So we can't make them stand alone as isolated words of wisdom or good advice. They're firmly a part of Jesus' announcement of the arrival of the kingdom of God, and that is going to lead us on a firm trajectory to the cross and resurrection. And we also saw that Jesus' sermon on the plain needs to be heard against the background of Moses' sermon on the plains of Moab in the book of Deuteronomy. God renewing his covenant with Israel. Jesus now laying out the basis and the terms of the new covenant he's making in his blood. So to understand these words this morning, I'm going to suggest we need to consider three, three things, three points today. The first will be this whole idea of the blessing of God and his promise of riches under the old covenant. The second, we'll have to, we'll have to grapple with what does Jesus mean by saying that the rich are actually poor? And thirdly, how does Jesus intend that the poor should in their turn become rich in him? So the blessing of God, blessing God promises in the old covenant, what it means that the rich have become poor, and what Jesus means by saying the poor will become rich in him. If we were first century Jewish listeners hearing Jesus preach this sermon, we would just have been halted in our tracks Because everything we've understood about God's promise of blessings and his warning of curses has just been turned on its head. Because here's what God promised the children of Israel would experience as results of faithful covenant obedience when he made a covenant with them in Deuteronomy. He said, you'll be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed. The crops of your land, the young of your livestock. And conversely, the warning that comes to them about covenant disobedience is this. You will be cursed in the country, cursed in the city. The fruit of your womb will be cursed and the crops of your land, the cows of your herds, the lambs of your flocks. Now, it's important to recognize that in the ancient world, 
Uh, wealth was not measured by dollars in the bank. Uh, it wasn't, wasn't measured by the size of your share market portfolio, although this week no one's measuring their wealth by the size of their sh share market portfolio. Um, how you measured your wealth in the ancient world was by the size of your family. Uh, it, was, it was measured in terms of how many bags of grain you got per acre. Uh, it was measured by how many head of cattle and goats and sheep, how many baskets of, of grapes you harvested. See, God intended the people he called to himself to be rich in every sense. He gives them this fertile land, and it already contains cities and houses, vineyards and orchards already prepared for them. This is a people that won't be scraping by uh, on their bare bums, but living in the midst of absolute plenty. And that means they will be well-fed. They will enjoy rich celebrations of laughter. And they'll live in peace and security. And, and they will even have the respect and admiration of the nations around them. So my Christian brother from Good Fortune Church in his expensive SUV, he's understood this perfectly well. The notion that the kingdom of God is a realm of great riches and uh, abundant human flourishing is an idea that goes back to Genesis 1. God blessed the man and woman and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish, over the birds, over ever -living, every living creature. Within the kingdom of God, humans are meant to be kings and queens, enjoying all the privileges and, and the wealth and the power that that entails. And it's important to know, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God and became estranged from him, God did not curse them. He cursed the conditions of their existence, but not them. The original blessing that he mandated for human beings continued to be applied to elect humanity, to those that God called. It's the same blessing that goes to Noah, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, not simply for their personal benefit, but so that they may play a key role in God's intention to bless all humanity. And so when we come back to the plains of Moab and God makes this covenant with Israel, that's exactly what he's expressing here. Hear Israel and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey just as the, God, uh, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. So if we were first century Jewish listeners, we would already know that prosperity, full stomachs, celebration and human approval are signs of God's blessing for covenant obedience. And we would know that poverty, starvation, weeping and suffering are the woes that are rightly deserved for covenant disobedience. So how does this all get turned up the other way in Jesus' sermon? What does he mean by saying that the rich are actually poor? Well, Jesus has more to say about the rich and about wealth and therefore about the poor in Luke's gospel than he has to say in any of the other gospels. And in fact, he has more encounters with rich people in Luke's gospel. So for Luke, this whole theme of the rich and the poor is an important theme of the gospel. But as we look at these interactions and these words, we find out that it's not as straightforward as we might think. There's clearly a critique 
of the rich running here. And two important stories stand out. We have the parable of the rich farmer in Luke 12. Uh, in that parable, we meet a man whose land yields an abundant harvest, so much grain that he counsels himself to tear down his old barns and build new ones. So under the terms of the Mosaic Covenant, we would be already thinking of him as, as indeed a blessed man. But Jesus goes on to portray him in a very poor light. To begin with, this man starts a conversation with himself. Kenneth Bailey, a Middle East expert, turns out that in, in Middle Eastern culture, talking to yourself is a very bad sign. Because in a culture in which everyone is immersed all the time in family and community, nobody ever talks to themselves. And no one ever takes a big decision on their own. It's a community decision. This rich man is isolated from his community. And we discover he's also a selfish man. His abundant harvest should have spilled over to the community so that all might benefit from it. Instead, he hoards it away as a nest egg uh, for his retirement. And just as he's con uh, congratulating himself and consulting with his own soul, God confronts him and demands his own soul back from him. And he then disperses his wealth to others. His riches have brought him woe. And Jesus finishes with the moral of the story this way. This is how it will be with those who store up things for themselves, but are not rich towards God. And what do we make of the rich ruler who approaches Jesus in Luke 18? Remember the question he asks? What must I do to inherit eternal life. Listen, listen to his language here. As you recall, Jesus quizzes him on what he has actually done and he, and he recites to him commandments 5 through 9 of the Ten Commandments, which all have to do with loving your neighbour. Well, the rule confidently affirms he's kept all of these. So Jesus then offers him this advice. You still lack one thing. Sell all you have. Give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. We read that when he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Now I want to ask you, what did this rich man lack? Did he lack poverty? Was, was that the key to his salvation? Is that what Jesus wanted him to have? Well, the answer actually lies in what Jesus didn't recite to this man. The commandments that speak of loving God and worshipping him alone. The commandment that speaks about not coveting your neighbour's property in your heart. So there's clearly a critique of the rich running through Luke's gospel. And at times, Jesus makes his point with, with exaggerated, bold statements like, sell everything that conceal an important subtlety. Because behind all this, material wealth as such is not the issue. Nowhere does Jesus' gospel of salvation state that poverty, hunger, sorrow or suffering save you. There is no intrinsic value in being poor or destitute. And so poverty as such is also not the issue. In fact, as we go through Luke's gospel, we'll, we'll meet a handful of characters who are wealthy and become followers of Jesus without 
any hint that they sell everything to follow him. Uh, Zacchaeus, the tax collector in Luke 19. Um, Joseph, the, the member of the Jewish council who risks his life to request Jesus' body from Pilate. Matthew's gospel will tell us he's a rich man. Uh, he's rich enough to have saved up for his own tomb already and gives it to Jesus. Nonetheless, Jesus' uh, striking words to the rich contain an important warning. Wealth is not the merit badge uh, for good behaviour that they may assume it to be. It's not the sure sign that you have been an obedient, faithful follower of God. Quite the opposite. Wealth is a trap. The rich are at risk of sleepwalking into peril. The rich, if they're not careful, will become poor. Woe to the rich. Now, to find an explanation for what's going on here, we need to turn once again to the book of Deuteronomy. The Lord warns Moses before the people enter the land and says to him, when I've brought this people into the land flowing with milk and honey, and when they eat their fill and thrive, they will turn to other gods and worship them, rejecting me and breaking my covenant. Israel would grow sleek and fat on the riches of God's land. And in that moment, they would forget their story. They would forget that they were once destitute slaves and that their present wealth was entirely a gift from God. And then they would begin to worship the fertility gods and the livestock gods and the vegetation gods that they assume are responsible for their prosperity. Um, they would begin to act as though their prosperity was the result of their own hard labour and their own clever deals with pagan gods. As we come to the opening chapters of Isaiah, Isaiah introduces us to, uh, sets a courtroom scene, a courtroom scene in which God takes his people to court uh, on charges of flagrant covenant disobedience. And he brings two pieces of evidence. Exhibit A in God's prosecution will actually be the poor, that is, the downtrodden in Israel, who the rich have deprived of material help and justice. Because although the, the laws that God set for the people of Israel were meant to ensure that the poor were provided for out of the wealth of the land, what we discover is the rich end up exploiting the poor for their own gain. And so God rails against the full bellies and the lavish celebrations and the self-congratulatory parties of the rich. That's exhibit A. Exhibit B that God presents against Israel are the lifeless foreign gods of wood and stone that they have forsaken the living God to worship. Here's the root problem in Israel. And with those two bits of evidence, God will rest his case. And he sentences his people to be stripped of her land and wealth and sent right back into slavery. And so, by reducing his covenant people again to poverty, to hunger, to mourning and persecution, the Lord exposes their true spiritual poverty, their fundamental blindness and sin. They failed to see that the true wealth of God's blessing was not located in the gifts that God had given. It was actually located in the gift 
of God himself. The land was not their true inheritance. God the Lord was their true inheritance. He was their true wealth. So rich, prosperous Israel is actually spiritually poor, cursed and wretched. They didn't know where their wealth actually lay. And so we come to consider Jesus' point. How is it that the poor then will become truly rich in him? Well, we heard read this morning again, uh, Jesus' announcement of the arrival of God's kingdom uh, in Luke's gospel. Words he takes from Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. Well, now perhaps we can hear his words to us in Luke 6 a bit more clearly. Woe to you who are rich, because you've already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now. Woe to you who laugh now. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. Beware of riches. Wealth is a trap. Wealth makes us blind. And again, the problem is not wealth in itself because Jesus himself will speak of the coming kingdom um, as the restoration of God's people to their, their intended places as kings and queens over creation. And he'll depict the kingdom of God as a banquet, uh, you know, full stomachs for all, uh, laughter and celebration for the people of God. So Jesus is not about being a socialist here. He's not about stripping the affluent of their wealth and redistributing it to the poor, who, by the way, would then become affluent and oppressive in their turn, if history is correct. He's not about waging class war here. He is exposing the real danger of turning wealth into an idol. He's talking about the quiet seduction that comes with wealth as it invites us to locate our real hope, our real joy, and our real purpose in material affluence, in stuff. What are the chief idols in West Australian society right now? Money, food, this thing we call happiness, human approval and recognition. Woe to us. We are a culture that has forsaken the living God for lifeless gods of wood and stone. We can't take any of it with, with it when we die. These gods will benefit us nothing when we're in the grave. As a culture, we are a people who are sinfully blind. Jesus' blessings and woes don't just turn Jewish expectations on their heads. They're actually a direct challenge to the prevailing view of Western culture that victory belongs to the strong. Success goes to the competent. That the resourcefully independent will inherit the earth. Because these are all virtues in Western society, right? But right here, Jesus exposes them as frauds. The problem with wealth is that it makes us self-reliant, self-satisfied, and self-interested. Affluence and success make us unresponsive to God's call. We become deaf and blind. That is why the first will be last and the last will be first. 
because we're fundamentally created for relationship with God. We're fundamentally created to live independence upon his life-giving spirit. We're created to be responsive to his word. We're created to share in his sovereignty over creation. These are what make us really human. Not our wealth, not our competence, not our independent self-resourcefulness. So yes, blessed are the poor, the hungry, the grieving, the persecuted, not because poverty and oppression are virtues, but, but because such people are in touch with their need for the living God. In Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, that's what he means by calling the poor, the poor in spirit. In other words, those with a humble and contrite heart who know they are poor and know they need God's rescue. And I'd go even so far as to say that poverty, hunger, bereavement and rejection, as evil as these things are in themselves, nonetheless, they may actually be used by God for his own good purposes. You know, it's, it's often when we lack materially, it's often when we encounter struggles in life that our ears are most open, our eyes are most open to what God is doing. This is often the opportunity for us to know him better. Very few of the Psalms cry out to God from a position of strength and, and success and prosperity, but very many of them come as cries for help in the midst of desperate circumstances. In the life of King David, the most prolific Psalm writer, you know, the trappings of rank and material prosperity don't seem to have featured um, as factors in his spiritual growth. If anything, they're identified as factors in his spiritual laziness and backsliding. The story we hear about David, the story he tells in the Psalms that he writes, tells us of a lifetime of learning to trust in the Lord through the experience of adversity, of deprivation and need, even when these were the direct result of his own sin and failure. So blessed are all you who hunger now. Blessed are you who weep now. Blessed are you when people hate you, exclude you and insult you. And woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are well fed now. Woe to you who laugh now. Woe to when everyone speaks well of you. For you have no need of God. Well, so that brings me back to the question posed to the rich ruler. What then should I do? We'll examine Jesus' answer here carefully. Uh, this man is an idolater. That's his problem. He does not love God so much as he loves his own wealth and his own capability, the things he knows he can do. But his heart is actually poor, captive, blind and oppressed. And Jesus' compassionate response to this man is that he should sell everything, give it to the poor and have treasure in heaven. But here's the real call. Come Follow me. This, this isn't a call to double down on the requirements of the Mosaic Covenant. This isn't a try harder and do better. This is a call to free himself of his false idols because he can neither rely on his wealth or his own capability. Nor can he save himself, nor will he save himself simply by becoming impoverished and serving the poor. His real need, his real freedom is answered by falling into step and going with Jesus.
get in the wheelbarrow, in other words. And where will that lead us? Well, in Luke's gospel, that leads us to the cross, where Jesus embodies the very thing he's preaching here, because he will go stripped, thirsty, grieving, and rejected in our place. We sung this earlier, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a human being. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus steps into our poverty so that we may step into his wealth. In the words of the Apostle Paul, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Amen.